through any other system of knowledge that we have come across. So we come like hungry, thirsty beings in a desert to an oasis. And indeed, when we reach this oasis, we take a sip of a nectar that is like a balm. Not balm, B-O-M, but balm, B-A-L-M. Soothing, refreshing, resuscitating, medicinal, truly a medicine for our ailment. Now, all of us know that when we go to a doctor and we get prescribed medicine, we're supposed to take it. If we don't take the medicine, then the likelihood of it being effective is zero. And so it is in this Dhamma and discipline. The Buddha prescribes medicine and we have to take it. Bitter as it may be, unpleasant, arduous, sometimes we feel incapable of sustaining the course of treatment. But we keep coming back to retreats, to sittings, to practice, knowing that this is good for us. No matter how hard it might seem throughout the day, trying to stay focused on the breath, trying to keep the mind disciplined and restrained, we know the result of good effort. It's early in the retreat, and we haven't had a chance to apply the mind very much, but we've had a fair few hours of intense practice, and already you can feel, begin to feel, hopefully, a little distance from the world, a little bit more seclusion, safety, release of the poisons that infest and infect the mind in our normal routines of work and schedules, responsibilities and duties of daily life. Here in these unusual conditions where everyone is silent, all the food is prepared, we have very light duties. The main duty we have is to follow the schedule, to sit, to walk, to observe, to listen, to be attentive, to sustain attention on the breath, on the body, on the movements, on the mental weather in our own minds. Not looking around, not evaluating, not editorializing about our external experiences, but simply being present for what we're encountering here and now. This is the way that we take the medicine. We accept the prescription, we apply it, and we see the results in our own mind, moment by moment. We see the greed arising, and we apply 
a force of mindfulness to it, effort to sustain mindfulness. We trust the practice, we concentrate, and wisdom arises, insight arises little by little, deeper and deeper we go. So noticing the result of applying effort and realizing the benefits. We see the power of this medicine. Already we can feel a sense of seclusion from the world. As long as we don't allow the mind to return to the past or to turn to the future, as long as we can sustain present moment awareness, we receive the benefits of this medicine the peace, the ease, the clarity, confidence within us grow. The Buddha taught 84,000 verses. Tonight I would like to share a little bit in his own voice. This is from the numerical discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya. In the Book of the Sevens, number 65 from the Great Chapter, I talked about the Buddha's prescriptions, and this is just one of the many. Bhikkhus, when there is no sense of moral shame and moral dread, for one deficient in a sense of moral shame and moral dread, restraint, of the sense faculties lacks its proximate cause. What are we doing here as we sit? Sitting in one posture for hours at a time, walking quite restrained with eyes cast down, focusing on the movements of the body. We are practicing restraint of the sense faculties So when there is no sense of moral shame and moral dread, restraint of the sense faculties lacks its proximate cause. So when we feel a sense of moral shame and moral dread, we could have regret and remorse over our actions. We can reflect on how it is to live unrestrained, we can think back and ponder how has it been for us in the past when we did not live with moral restraint, with restraint of the senses. Then we could have regret and remorse over our actions. And we reflect back on things done and said in our lives and what that felt like for us. Did it bring peace? Did it bring a feeling of well-being, a feeling of contentment, a feeling of confidence? And now, when we practice restraint, moral restraint, keeping precepts, a very refined level of precepts, then 
we feel a certain ease within us. We feel the beauty of the heart. This beauty of the heart is based on a sense of moral regret and remorse over our actions. Then restraining the sense doors and focusing the mind leads to the effect of purifying the hindrances, the restlessness, the greed, the fear, the anxiety, the laziness, the confusion. We restrain these flows of the mind, of the mental affluence. And we train ourselves, this is a training of the mind, to be alert and see how our restraint gives us greater purity of mind and purity of focus. They are very connected. Restraining and keeping precepts leads to and empowers mental purification. It's very important for us to be able to see this connection. So when there is no sense of moral shame and moral dread, one deficient in moral shame and moral dread is unable to restrain the senses. So they go hand in hand. A sense of moral regret and remorse over our actions leads us to the ability to reflect on how unbeneficial it is to be unrestrained and then empowers future moral shame and moral dread and restraining the sense doors in the future. Now, for some of us, the word moral shame might be feel a bit heavy. But think of it this way. Rather than shame like embarrassment, it's understanding the danger of being morally unrestrained and knowing the value of restraining ourselves in the future. Now, present moment, and we intend to sustain this ethical restraint, not to harm any living being through body, speech, or thought. And this enhances our ability to meditate and to take the medicine of the Buddha. Moral shame instructs us in how we failed to do this in the past. Moral dread looks towards how we will do this in the future. We're not getting graded. It's not like failing an exam, but it's not living up to the best within us. This is the power of purification. When there is no restraint of the sense faculties, for one deficient in restraint of the sense faculties, virtuous behavior lacks its proximate cause. No restraint, there's no sila. The sila of body, speech, and mind. When there is no virtuous behavior, one deficient in virtuous behavior, bright concentration 
lacks its proximate cause. So without sila, the mind cannot become deeply concentrated because the energy in the mind is so taken up, is so dented by our lack of restraint and by the impurities that we have practiced. But once we begin to whittle away those unwholesome inclinations, once we begin to teach ourselves the value of purity of body, speech, and mind, then the mind is empowered and purified so that it can be deeply with itself. It it gains integrity. It's like sealing up the holes, the leaks, the rents. It's as if we've been split into many pieces, just like a wire along which we want electricity to flow. If the wire is broken or even bent, you have to really make a good connection for your appliance to work. Otherwise, it will not. The lamp will not light. The device will not function. The same is true with this flow of energy, the electric energy of the body-mind. does not flow in the direction of concentration, of developing the faculties for releasing the mind from being tethered to the world. So these connections are very useful for us to contemplate. When there is no right concentration, one deficient in right concentration, the knowledge and vision of things as they really are lacks its proximate cause. When there is no knowledge of things as they really are, for one deficient in knowledge and vision of things as they really are, then disenchantment and dispassion towards the world lack their proximate cause. In connection to all these causes and conditions for freedom from suffering to arise in the mind. Actually, by developing sila samadhi panya, of virtue, concentration and wisdom, we're cultivating good conditions to wake up from our sickness, from our bondage. When there is no disenchantment and dispassion, one deficient in disenchantment and dispassion, the knowledge and vision of liberation lacks its proximate cause. So as long as we are still enchanted by the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and gratification through tangible objects in the world, then we will never be able to free our minds from the attraction to worldly experience. What is this awakening? What is this enlightenment that we are after here? It's to free ourselves from these entrapments. Just like a wild animal, if you set a trap for it and it steps into the trap, 
then it will be paralyzed, crippled, unable to free itself from the hunter's trap. And so we are. We are deeply addicted to the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, the gratification by touch of worldly things, worldly experiences at all the sense doors. Just think about how attached people are to their cell phones. How people sleep with their cell phones, eat with their cell phones. I see children coming to the monastery. They don't say hello or greet respectfully the monastics. They just take out their cell phones and sit in a corner and tap the buttons obsessively. Children. So obsessed that they lose all sense of value of human interaction. Whatever attachments have been cultivated in our lives seem to be increasing in speed and impact with these gadgets that we are being overtaken by to the point where we no longer rely on our own judgment. We have to check with an app. There's an app for everything. Children don't know how to do math because they have apps. But what about aptitude, mental aptitude? That's the best app of all. And we're not using it. We're losing it. It's really urgent that we take this Buddha medicine, Dhamma medicine, to get ourselves out of this subtle and more and more refined world of entrapment. The Buddha gives now a very wonderful metaphor. Suppose there is a tree deficient in branches and foliage then its shoots do not grow to fullness. Also its bark, softwood and heartwood do not grow to fullness. So too, when there is no sense of moral shame and moral dread, for one deficient in a sense of moral shame and moral dread, restraint of the sense faculties lacks its proximate cause. When there is no restraint of the sense faculties, virtuous behavior lacks its proximate cause. When there is no virtuous behavior, one deficient in virtuous behavior, right concentration lacks its proximate cause. When there is no right concentration, one deficient in right concentration, knowledge and vision of things as they really are lacks its proximate cause. For one deficient in the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, disenchantment and dispassion lack their proximate cause. For one deficient in disenchantment and dispassion for the world, the knowledge and vision of liberation lacks its proximate cause. 
But when there is a sense of moral shame and moral dread, for one possessing a sense of moral shame and moral dread, restraint of the sense faculties possesses its proximate cause. So think of it. If we have moral shame and moral dread, then we can restrain the senses. I think it's useful for us to contemplate this tree that is denuded of its branches and foliage and is not able to develop its heartwood, bark, its softwood, cannot grow to fullness. Think of it. We, as human beings, cannot grow to our full potential if we do not have a deep sense of moral integrity within us. If we are not whole, morally whole, in the fabric of our being. If we're unable to keep precepts, restrain our faculties, practice virtuous conduct and speech, understand the difference between harmlessness and harm towards others and ourselves, then how will we grow in this Dhamma and discipline? How does one get enlightened? What is the way to enlightenment? Following the precept, sila. Understanding impermanence. Anyone else? Yes. The Eightfold Path. It's eightfold. Sila, samadhi, anya. Right view, right understanding, right speech, right action, right livelihood. The right view, right understanding are the wisdom aspects. And the Eightfold Path is presented in a linear way, but it develops not linearly. All the limbs of the path develop together. But without a little bit of wisdom, we don't even set foot on the path. So we have a little bit of right view, and then we develop a deeper and deeper level of really right understanding. And then from that, we develop right intention or right thought. And based on that, as well as following precepts, we sustain our sila through right speech, right action, right livelihood. How do we spend our time? Even the particular profession that we choose. Non-harming, non-violence to ourselves and others. Practicing kindness. Practicing moral integrity. It's not just a formula of precepts. And then right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That's the concentration group or the cultivation group. So we have virtuous conduct, concentration, and wisdom. Those three areas which fleshed out amount to the Eightfold Noble Path. So it's not just through meditation 
It's not just through virtuous conduct. It's not just through understanding, but it's through a combination of those that we can free ourselves from the shackles of this dusty realm of the world. What it is when a tree has all its leaves intact. Suppose there is a tree possessing branches and foliage. Then its shoots grow to fullness. Also its bark, softwood, and heartwood grow to fullness. So too, when there is a sense of moral shame and moral dread, for one possessing a sense of moral shame and moral dread, the restraint of the sense faculties possesses its proximate cause. For one who has restraint of the sense faculties, virtuous behavior has its proximate cause. When one has virtuous behavior, that is the proximate cause for concentration. When one has concentration of mind, then that is the proximate cause for knowledge and vision of things as they truly are. We begin to see the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the emptiness, the non-selfness of all conditioned phenomena. When there is knowledge and vision of things as they really are, then disenchantment and dispassion for the world have a proximate cause. When we begin to see within the mind phenomena arising and ceasing by being very mindful, very still, very clear, we begin to see breath arising and ceasing. The beginning, the middle, the ending of the breath. Feelings, perceptions, mental formations, arising and ceasing, mind objects arising and ceasing. All conditioned phenomena arising and ceasing in the mind. Impermanent, in and of themselves, unsatisfactory. Their nature is to arise and cease. We cannot cling to anything, so therefore it is suffering nature. And these things are all empty of any permanent self, then we begin to understand things as they... We have knowledge and vision of things as they really are, and we develop dispassion and disenchantment for them. There's nothing there to grasp. This helps us to free ourselves from clinging. This is a freedom for us. This leads to the knowledge and vision of liberation in the mind. The cultivation of the Eightfold Path is oftentimes neglected for the fascination with meditation alone. The methodology and the fascinating experiences that come when the mind is still and purified and we begin to see wondrous things in the mind. But it's really important for us as moral beings. We are, in fact, 
moral beings rather than just human beings. We are moral beings. And to be true to our true nature, we need to develop integrity which is of a moral quality. This is the core principle of this teaching. It's called the path of purification. So we, we purify body and speech and thought. And they go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. The health of our moral fiber directly relates to the health of the mind. And the health of the mind directly relates to the power of the mind for insight, for illumination, the ability of the mind to be freed. Just contemplating in these ways, it's an encouragement to us that the medicine that the Buddha describes is a long course of treatment. It's exceedingly long. And we should not be hasty in evaluating the depth of this commitment, the profundity of it, the scope of it, the range of it, and to continue to apply the medicines that the Buddha prescribes. Restraint of the senses, moral shame, moral dread. Moral dread means fear of the slightest fault. Instead of being afraid of other people's opinions about how we look and how we speak and how much we have in the bank, and who we're connected to. We should rather fear the danger of harming any being, including ourselves. Instead of worrying about how we're going to spend our time and how we've spent our time, who we're going to spend our time with and where we're going to spend our time, we should be more concerned with the purity of the mind and the diet that we feed it, how much anger we hold, how much greed, how restless we are, how unrestrained, how distracted, how anxious, how reliant on unreliable things. It's very important for us to apply these reflections that help us to examine our condition. If we examine the state of our mind, no matter how terrible it might seem, we need not be discouraged. We only have to say, the results up to now are not so great, but we can improve upon this. Just like the tree that's leaves are not present, Add water, put it in the sun, care for it, chant to it, encourage it, and it will grow. This is why we come on retreat. This is why we continue to practice, take up the practice, 
and we persevere and persist, even if we feel exhausted or discouraged, we goad ourselves. Instead of trying to be a good tennis player, runner, cyclist, computer wizard, or whatever skill that we're interested in developing, the most beneficial skill that we can develop for our life, for growing to our full potential, is this skill of learning to concentrate the mind, to purify the mind, to develop one-pointedness, equanimity, to conduct ourselves in our worldly affairs with kind and gentle speech and conduct. This is how we will blossom as human beings, as wise beings. It's really important for us to weigh the benefits, to see how am I living my life, how am I investing my time, where am I putting my effort, and to refigure things, reorganize things. If we're watering a tree and we're carrying the water to the tree in a leaky bucket, how will we water the tree? How can we water the tree of enlightenment with a leaky bucket? Our leaks are moral ineptitude. That means non-skill in morality. That's the bottom line. And everything else that we add on top of that is pertinent to the growth and development of the other limbs of the Eightfold Path. By completing the Eightfold Path, by converging the factors of the Eightfold Path, we can know the peace that we are really hungering for. There is no gadget. There is no worldly experience that can give us that peace. This is something for us to figure out by investigating and examining the results of how we live and how we are here and now and how we live and how we are after we practice, after we apply the Buddha's medicine. So, we might feel like we're in a desert, but each of us is like a little tree with beautiful shoots coming up. And we keep taking the medicine to its full course so that the shade that we can provide to ourselves and each other as our branches grow wide and resplendent will be truly fully developed and we will realize what we truly aspire for what a blessing for everyone we can feel the joy of that